This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, violence and threats of violence, and negative cultural values, including patriarchy, sexism, misogyny, and ableism. The views of the characters do not reflect the views of the author. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 356. Happy New Year, Metamorphs! Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, your guide to the fantastical world of Metamorph City. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I bring you my fresh new fiction and tell you the latest on my writing endeavors. So let's kick off 2023 with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 7 of Honor Reclaimed by L.C. Williams. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 350 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. When we last saw Natasha, she was at a meeting for a disabled veterans group at the Axon Mug, a tavern in the notoriously disreputable Clearwater District. She had come there with Noble Alex, to listen to the veterans' concerns and gather support for the Veterans Adjustment Act. For Natasha, it was an opportunity to deepen her friendship with Alex, and also to distract herself from her relationship troubles with Honor, who is upset with Natasha for keeping secrets from her. Alex and Natasha met with Staff Sergeant Barnes, one of the de facto leaders of the group. Barnes, in turn, introduced them to many of his compatriots, all of whom had suffered terrible injuries that even healing magic had been unable to reverse. Still, these men were adamant that they wanted the dignity of work, not just charity. But nobody wants to hire a cripple, even if all he needed were a few accommodations. Alex was sympathetic to the veterans' message, but they noted that this was a problem that would require more than just government action. The attitudes and opinions of the general public would also need to change. Barnes conceded that this wasn't something that would happen overnight, and even the veterans themselves weren't immune to the fear and bias they were working against. By way of example, he directed Alex's attention to a man in a wheelchair, sitting in a shadowy corner flanked by two muscular assistants. His name was Howard, and he was one of the group's chief financial benefactors, but apart from that, Barnes knew little about him. The man wore a mask painted to look like a realistic human face, apparently to hide the disfiguring injuries he suffered in the war. Barnes admitted that even he found the man frightening. Alex, ever the empath, immediately asked Barnes to invite Howard to come speak with them. Barnes went to extend the offer, but cautioned that Howard might not accept. Understandably, he was wary of strangers. After Barnes left the table, 
Natasha decided to go hit up some of the other veterans for a game of pool, leaving Alex to their interviews. Natasha quickly bonded with the other veterans, falling into the sort of carousing that characterized her life before Honor. Unfortunately, Natasha has never had the healthiest coping skills for dealing with emotional pain, and right now she has a lot of it. Not only was she feeling sad and guilty about Honor, but she was feeling sorry for herself for the way she got kicked out of the service. These ex-soldiers were unquestionably her people, and being a soldier was the only thing she'd ever really been good at. But after what she did to Major Rutgers back in Havane, that career path was forever closed to her. Before the night was out, Alex was waking her out of a drunken stupor next to an empty bottle of whiskey. As they stumbled toward the exit, Alex supporting Natasha's weight, they were stopped by one of Howard's attendants. The man in the painted mask wanted to speak to them. It was bad timing, but Alex didn't want to rebuff the man when he had finally extended a show of trust, so they went over and invited him to come speak to them at Townsend Tower at a later date. Howard responded with a slow, rattling voice. I have one question for you, noble. It concerns your companion. Then the attendant standing behind him removed his mask, showing his crushed and ruined face. A face ruined not by a grenade or shrapnel or poison gas, but by a crowbar in Natasha's enraged hands. Major Howard Rutgers glared up at them with his one remaining eye, and spoke with a voice full of hatred. What do you think should be done, noble Alex, with the soldier who did this to her superior officer? Natasha and Alex turned to look at each other, and Alex saw the truth of the man's words on Natasha's sickened face. Then a hood came down over Natasha's head, and a blow to the back of her skull left her unconscious. Honor Reclaimed The House of Bellevue Book 3 By L.C. Williams Narrated by Vivian Ferrari Chapter 7 Monsters and Victims Four hours earlier Natasha woke to find her head throbbing in at least two distinctly different ways. She was in a small and grimy-looking office, lit by a single gas lamp on the wall. If she was not still in the axe and mug, it was at least some place of the same general caliber. The wooden chair in which she sat had no cushion, and it faced a bare wall of cracked and flaking plaster. Her hands were bound at the wrists behind her, and her ankles had been tied to the legs of the chair. Whoever done it was no stranger to rope work, but judging by the lack of sensation in her fingers, they were not particularly concerned with whether they caused her any permanent damage. She flexed her arms as much as she could, trying to work some blood past the bonds. It worked, a little. After a moment her fingers started to tingle. As she turned her head to try and look over her shoulder, a fresh wave of agony ran through her skull. 
she groaned. You're awake. Alex's voice was guarded, carefully neutral. Natasha looked over her other shoulder and spotted them, seated in another chair in the far corner of the room. They had unbuttoned the top three buttons of their uniform, and their eyes looked sunken and tired. There was a green glass bottle sitting on the little desk next to them, half full. They retrieved it and came over to her. I suspect you're thirsty, after the night you had. Drink. They placed the bottle to Natasha's lips, and slowly and carefully she drank. Water, with the faintly bitter aftertaste that said it had been alchemically purified. It still tasted better than whatever residue was in her mouth right now. She drank until Alex took the bottle away. Thank you, she said. Her voice sounded hoarse and scratchy. Alex made no response, just carried the bottle back and set it on the desk again. Where is Rutgers? she asked, after a moment. Trying to reach Lord Bellevue, Alex said, in that same carefully neutral tone. I told him that the Baron was en route to Drowling Chalet. The telegraph lines don't go out that far, but they may be able to send a courier from Malin. The androgyne dragged their chair over to Natasha, positioning it a couple of feet away from her on her left side. They sat down on it backwards, resting their elbows on the backrest, and regarded her intently. I told him I would keep an eye on you. I wanted the chance to speak with you alone. Natasha sighed. She knew what was coming and how it was likely to end. You want me to explain myself, she said, looking over at them. How I could do that to superior officer. Alex's eyes hardened. So it's true, then. You beat that poor man nearly to death. With crowbar, Natasha agreed wearily. A muscle jumped in Alex's jaw. Why? I cannot say. Why not? There was a crack of anger in the androgyne's voice. Natasha met their eyes. Because I gave my word, she said. This was agreement. I keep silent about what happened. They give me honorable discharge. Honorable. Alex's lip curled. I fail to see what is honorable about doing that to anyone, much less your commanding officer. Ah, Natasha sighed, hanging her head in exhaustion. And I cannot tell you the reason. If I tell you, I go to prison. It's very convenient for everyone. She let out a bitter laugh. Except me. Alex did not say anything for a long moment. Natasha glanced aside at them. Their eyes were distant, narrowed in thought. This happened when you were in Havane, they said. It wasn't a question. This is true, Natasha said. Where you had served with distinction, Alex said. Natasha nodded. You received the Order of Valor. The, Natasha agreed. And they never stripped it from you, Alex mused, more to themselves than to Natasha. But you had to leave the service. This was part of agreement, Natasha said. 
Alex gave her a measuring look. Raising a hand to a superior officer is insubordination. Technically, Natasha said, it was attempted murder. Alex winced. Just so. A soldier who committed such a crime should have been stripped of all honors and thrown in prison. But you weren't. Natasha shrugged. This is also true. Alex sat back and ran both hands through their hair, a frustrated gesture. Gods! Natasha, none of this makes sense! It does make sense, Natasha said. But not when you think like Cadet. That got Alex's attention. They turned back to her, their forehead creased in puzzlement. As Cadet, you are taught the Army Manual, Natasha explained. They teach you rules and procedures and... She searched her memory for the right word. Doctrine. They tell you there is one right thing for every situation. Slowly, Alex nodded. Yes? It is not like this in war, Natasha said. For two years, we were in Hevain. At first, officers follow doctrine on both sides. The lines do not move. Soldiers die, but battle does not end. Everyone knows something must change. So one day, someone breaks doctrine, tries something new, in little ways at first. And sometimes it works. The enemy is surprised. One side pushes forward, gains ground. The side that lost ground is angry that rules were broken, but side that gained ground is happy because something finally worked. So both sides are ready to break rules again, but in bigger ways. She paused, made sure Alex was looking her in the eye. This goes on for two years. All rules of war are forgotten. Crops are burned so enemy will starve. Medical supplies are destroyed. Wells are filled in. Poison gas and death magic and, worse, are used on enemy trenches. Anything for advantage. Anything to win. Alex slumped a little in their chair, looking queasy. Gods, they whispered. Natasha gave a slow nod. No, she said. This is all very bad for soldiers, those who suffer these things, and those who do them. Because some think, if there are no rules in war anymore, then there are no rules for anything. They do horrible things to innocent people, because they can, because they have power, and because they think no one will stop them. Alex's eyes focused on Natasha again, drawn back from whatever horrors they were imagining. They leaned forward again on the seat back, looked closely at Natasha's face. So you stopped, Rutgers, because he was doing something horrible. This is the part I cannot talk about, Natasha said. All right, Alex said, their frustration evident in their voice. Suppose I make some guesses, and you nod your head if I am right. Natasha sighed. 
Alex, this is not bargain with Domovoy where I can escape with clever tricks. I gave my word not to tell anyone. If you do not know, and you talk to me, and then you know, then I have broken promise, and I go to jail. It does not matter how I do it. Alex slumped again, looking miserable. No, I suppose not. Natasha inclined her head in their direction. All I can tell you is this. What I did, I did because I thought it was right thing to do. No, that is not quite true. It was least wrong thing I could do. She shrugged again. You know me by now. I consider you friend. All I can ask is that you trust me. Alex grimaced, as if Natasha's words had caused them physical pain. They looked away, lowered their eyes. You're asking a great deal of me, Natasha. You would have me excuse a crime, an assault that has left a man crippled for life. Their lips compressed together in a hard line. Tonight I met men who had been maimed by landmines, by gas, by heavy machinery. None of them was so, so completely savaged as the man in that wheelchair. And in your defense, you can offer me only vague insinuations, without evidence, that this man was doing something foul enough to deserve it. Natasha said nothing. There was nothing more she could say and still keep her honor. This is why Rutgers let Alex talk to me alone, she thought. Of course they will not believe me. Who would? Alex got to their feet again. Suppose you're right, Natasha. Suppose you're right, and the war did turn people into monsters. Who's to say that didn't happen to you? Because no matter what Rutgers may have done, doing that to another person is a monstrous act. Natasha looked down at the floor blinked tears out of her eyes. I do not deny it, she whispered. This is the curse of Hivain. We are all monsters. We are all victims. After that, the only sounds she made were quiet sobs. Alex remained very still for a long moment, watching her, perhaps, though Natasha could not be sure. By the time she looked up again, the androgyne was gone. Natasha was not sure how much time passed after that. She may have fallen asleep. Eventually, the drinks she had consumed caught up with her, and her bladder began urgently demanding her attention. She shouted for Alex, then, but instead of the androgyne coming back, it was one of Rutgers's looming attendants. He untied her from the chair, but left her hands bound behind her as he escorted her to the water closet. This turned out to be a small interior room, with no windows, a single toilet, and absolutely nothing that Natasha could use to free herself. The attendant unfastened her trousers, pulled them down around her ankles with perfectly clinical disinterest, and then stood back and waited while she did her business. Natasha had no self-consciousness about pissing in front of a man— They'd had to do that and worse in close quarters, back when she was in the trenches. 
so she quickly finished and then stood up again. The attendant held up a few sheets of toilet paper, raised his eyebrows in silent question. Natasha sighed in irritation, then nodded, giving her consent. He blotted her off, as quickly and non-invasively as such a thing could be done, then pulled up her trousers and fastened them again. Natasha admired the man's professionalism, but then she supposed anyone who had to take care of Major Rutgers was probably used to such things. She considered trying to attack the attendant before they left the washroom to make a play for her freedom. She quickly discarded the idea. Not only were her hands tied behind her back, but the man was taller than her and outweighed her by at least forty or fifty pounds. He had the look of a soldier about him, too. Most men his age had served in the war, even if the military wasn't their primary profession. Natasha did not like her odds if she tried to face off against him in their current position. She would have to wait and hope for a better opportunity. At least the fact that they were trying to reach Lord Bellevue meant that Rutgers did not intend to kill her, assuming he had told Alex the truth. As they left the washroom, the attendant steered Natasha down a different passage from the way they had come. They passed by doors and staircases that looked vaguely familiar, and Natasha heard the sounds of muffled voices coming from behind some of them. She reasoned that they must be in one of the tenement buildings near the Axe and Mug. The demand for cheap housing in the city had led to many old apartments being gutted and refitted, often shoddily, to house five or ten times as many residents as before. The corridors were narrow and poorly lit, and Natasha and the attendant snaked their way through a disorienting labyrinth, where every turn took them down a new passage that looked just like the one before. If not for the numbers on the rooms, written in peeling white paint, they might have been walking in circles. At last the attendant stopped her at a door bearing the number 27. He knocked twice, and after a moment, the door opened to reveal his counterpart. The second attendant eyed Natasha up and down with a look of distaste, then stepped aside to admit them into the room. There was a narrow bed with a thin mattress, a nightstand, a rickety-looking wooden dresser, and a freestanding garment rack in place of a closet. A chamber pot could be seen under the edge of the bed, and there was a single gas lamp burning on the far wall. Natasha's nose caught the distinctive musk and ammonia scent of rat urine. Rutgers sat in his wheelchair under the lamp, once again wearing his painted mask. Beside him, seated on the edge of the bed and looking distinctly out of place in his well-tailored waistcoat and jacket, was Lord Graham. Natasha felt an immediate sinking sensation in the pit of her stomach. Of course. Alex and Lord Bellevue had found out about the veterans' group from Graham. The scion was supposed to be at Drowling Ski Lodge, with the Baron and Honor and Lady Delphinia. If he was here, now, it was because he had never actually intended to go. He and Rutgers had planned this from the beginning. She could imagine how their conversation must have gone. Graham complaining about the Iron Griffin who worked for Lord Bellevue, a troublesome blonde woman who had risen above her station. Rutgers telling him a very selective version of what Natasha had done to him, and then the two of them conspiring together, setting a trap to expose this insubordinate troublemaker and drive her out. If Natasha herself hadn't come, surely Rutgers would have told his tale to Alex, 
who would have felt compelled to tell Lord Bellevue and Honor? The fact that she was here in person was just an added stroke of luck. They never cared about Alex's bill, she thought. This was about getting rid of me, the woman who made Lord Graham feel weak and afraid. She realized, far too late, that this was what Dorian had been trying to warn her about. A nobleman's pride could be a deadly thing. The scion looked up as Natasha was escorted inside, and an ugly smile crept onto his face. Well, well, well. If it isn't the brute, Graham said. He rose to his feet and sauntered over to Natasha, eyeing her like a rancher who had just trapped the wolf that was troubling his herd. Natasha glared back at him in defiance. There was no point in pretending now. Honor was already half convinced that Natasha would have to leave House Bellevue. Once she and her father knew what Graham knew, it would seal the matter. In the Eshian culture, it was important to recognize when your situation was hopeless. Once you realized that you were well and truly fucked, you could stand tall and face your end with dignity. As one proverb put it, there is no sense in throwing punches after the fight is over. She couldn't stop Lord Graham from ruining her life, but that didn't mean she had to cower before him either. He was a weak, foolish, and contemptible man, and Natasha would not hide her loathing for him. But Graham did not appear troubled by what she thought of him. He gestured lazily to the attendants, and one of them shut and locked the door. Natasha could feel the two big men looming behind her, ready to respond if she tried anything reckless. There wasn't room in the little cell for Graham to circle around her, so he settled for pacing slowly, back and forth in front of her, between the bed and the dresser on the opposite wall. Natasha noticed that his gait was slightly off balance. She wondered if he had been drinking. "'What a damned hypocrite you are,' he said, almost conversationally. The words had a slow, careful enunciation to them, which did not quite hide the way they tried to slur into one another. You condemn me for speaking ill of the Iron Griffins, and then I come to find that you nearly murdered poor Major Rutgers here. So who, between the two of us, has shown the greater disrespect to the uniform, Volkova? Natasha narrowed her eyes, but directed her attention to Rutgers. You found the wrong Bellevue, Major. The Baron is much older. She glanced aside at Lord Graham. And smarter. And better looking. Graham backhanded her across the face. One of his rings traced a line of fire across her cheek, and the scent of blood filled her nostrils. He leaned in close to her, that ugly smile growing wider and fouler by the second. She could smell the wine on his breath now. The scion of House Bellevue had definitely been in his cups tonight. Unfortunately for you, my dear cousin Harold is out of town at the moment, he said, savoring every gloating syllable like a man at a midwinter feast. In his absence, it falls to his scion to make decisions on house business. He stood up a little straighter and looked down his nose at her, with the air of a judge pronouncing a sentence. 
House Bellevue has no place for violent criminals. In light of this new information, your position as Lady Honor's companion is revoked. Effective immediately. Natasha tried not to let the stab of pain she felt show on her face. It was probably going to happen anyway. She stood tall, her chin high, and looked him straight in the eyes. He flinched first, but covered it by turning and resuming his pacing. You will be escorted back to the apartment, where a House Bellevue carriage is waiting for you, he continued. They will deliver you to the station, where you will take the first train south out of the city. I have taken the liberty of having your bag packed and loaded, so there will be no need for you to enter the apartment. Your dresses, of course, will remain the property of House Bellevue. He sneered at her. Perhaps I can have them refitted for Lady Delphinia. Natasha bared her teeth at him in return. Enjoy that power while you can, little man. You will not have it much longer. She expected that taunt to provoke his anger, to wound his pride and stoke his fears. But instead, he laughed. It was an even uglier thing than his smile, a sniggering, bubbling noise that made her think of a pot of porridge boiling over on a stove. You think that fluttery little girl is going to replace... Me? he asked. Lady Honor couldn't run a tea party, much less a noble house. <laughs> and by the time she gets back from Drowling's retreat, she's going to know it. A warning chime sounded in the back of Natasha's mind. What do you mean? Lady Drowling can be very persuasive, Graham purred. She's going to remind that scheming little bitch of her proper place. By the time they come home, my dear little cousin is going to have a whole new frame of mind, and all this talk of changing the succession will be an unhappy memory. Not that you'll be around to see it. Natasha felt her eyes go wide as she remembered Countess Harcourt's words. The conservatives are desperate. They can feel the tide of opinion turning against them, and they believe they can turn it back. And then, Alex's. The Viscount and his wife are both master wizards, and rumor has it they did terrible things during the war. Things like mind control, perhaps. Natasha knew that such spells existed, in the war she had seen enchantments used on enemy spies and soldiers to compel them to give up their secrets. Mind magic of that sort was illegal in every civilized nation, but in wartime such laws were meaningless. Old books of forbidden lore had been opened, their spells mastered by a new generation of wizards. Guns could be locked away at war's end, bombs could be dismantled, gas neutralized, ships mothballed. But... Knowledge endured. Natasha could imagine how those who had grown accustomed to such power would be tempted to use it again. She was suddenly very afraid for honor, and that fear gave her purpose, shook her out of her despair. Submitting stoically to her own destruction was one thing. Leaving honor to face hers was quite another. She had to get out of this somehow. She had to find Alex and warn them. 
Where did they go? Rutgers raised his wheezing voice. Bellevue, you talk too much. Graham waved a hand dismissively, his eyes still drinking up the fear and horror on Natasha's face. You worry too much. This stupid bitch can barely speak common. And even if she did, who would believe her? He stepped in very close to her now and showed her that ghastly grin again. I want you to know what awaits for your precious lady, brute. When you're alone at night, shivering in your hut in the mountains, I want you to think of her in her proper state, barefoot and pregnant, on her knees, servicing her lord husband. He pantomimed, taking something long and tubular in one hand, then raised it toward a mouth rounded into an O. Natasha snapped her head forward, striking him with the hard part of her skull just above the forehead. The blow drove his hand squarely into his own face. The knuckles smashed hard into his nose. There was an audible snap, and a gout of blood erupted from his face. Graham staggered back, clutching at his own face and screaming. Heedless of his surroundings in the tight space, he tripped over one wheel of Rutgers's chair and fell back hard on top of him. The chair tipped over backwards, and Graham and Rutgers fell in a clatter onto the hard, filthy floor. Graham continued screaming, while Rutgers let out a hollow, reedy wail of agony. Rutgers's attendants pushed past Natasha and rushed to help their fallen charge, hindered by the narrow space and the writhing, screaming scion on top of him. No one was paying attention to Natasha. Quickly, she backed up to the door, found the latch with her still tingling fingers, and after a few seconds of fumbling, managed to get it open. She stumbled out into the hallway, bounced off the opposite wall, and ran for her life. And, more importantly, for honors. And that's the end of Chapter 7. Come back next time as Natasha tries to make good her escape, and then warn Honor of the danger she's in. Chapters of The House of Bellevue will be released at a rate of one chapter per week for 51 weeks. If you'd like to listen to it faster, all three books are available now on Amazon and Audible. To learn more about these characters and their world, please visit www.authorlcwilliams.com. Abigail Adams said, My bursting heart must find vent at my pen. So, tap a vein with me and let's flow right into the weekly writing report. This update covers the week of November 5th through November 11th. I wrote 2,884 words this week, over the course of three hours, for an average writing speed of 961 words per hour. I wrote on five out of seven days this week. This week I went back and started rereading one of my unfinished stories, All the World of Fire, which I last worked on in 2019. This one focuses on Kevin, the pyrokinetic massage therapist from Making the Cut, and it also features Abby Preston in a key supporting role. 
I have over 28,000 words written on this story, so it's well on its way to novel territory. I just need to see if I can figure out where the plot is going, now that it's had some time to rest. I did this successfully with my science fiction story The Nearness of You back in 2019, so I'm optimistic that I can do it again. I'm currently reading through Chapter 5, and I really like what I'm seeing so far. Hopefully that feeling continues as I make my way through it. On the reading side, I've been working on a non-fiction book called Born to be Hanged by Keith Thompson. This is the utterly bonkers true story of a group of English pirates who were hired by the king of the indigenous Kuna people of southeastern Panama to rescue his granddaughter from the Spanish conquistadors. To do so, they had to find their way across the infamous Darien Gap, a 66-mile stretch of swamps, jungles, and mountains that is still one of the most inaccessible places in the world. Upon reaching the Pacific coast, they then had to take on the ships and soldiers of the Spaniards, with little more than their muskets and a bunch of canoes. The pirates, of course, were after Spanish gold, but if they could rescue a princess in the bargain, well, that might let them argue that they were hired mercenaries rather than actual pirates, which could help them escape the hangman's noose. I cannot do justice to this story with my description here. If you enjoyed the Pirates of the Caribbean films, or Treasure Island, or The Guild of the Cowrie Catchers by Abigail Hilton, you should give this book a try. It's a wild ride. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2022 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.